Good Friday is an interesting day. Why is Good Friday even good? Even a slight understanding of Good Friday suggests that it should be called Sad Friday or Bad Friday. Or if you're a Dr. Seuss fan, a very, very mad Friday. Why is it called Good Friday? Uh, The question lingers when the events are so horrifyingly bad. Why would we grab a name like good and attach it to this day? Celebrations of Good Friday often center on the most tragic and uh, gruesome events of that Friday night. They focus on the torture, and in some churches, uh, they'll even have meditations on uh, Jesus' seven words on the cross as he was being crucified, or, or maybe some uh, additional somber readings. These typically will then be followed by a sermon that focuses on sin and death and destruction and brokenness and judgment. Worship spaces are often somber, like a a funeral, if you would. Not much decoration, not much music, but very introspective and quiet. We too, as Rock Creek Church, we have practiced and do practice uh, such events. Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ is an ideal Good Friday film. Some of you have maybe seen that with its gruesome depiction of death from the time Jesus is arrested in the garden until he breathes his last on the cross. A spontaneous spectator, maybe someone who's just passing by, we would have to forgive them for being confused when we say, would you like to come to our Good Friday service? It's awkward. How in the world is Good Friday good? How is torture and death of an otherwise loving and kind and gentle and compassionate serving man, how is that good? And, and not even good, how in the world do we celebrate such an event when we think about his anguish and his pain? But it's not just for those who might uh, pass by spectators outside of the church. Christians are confused by this. Christ followers, solid Christ followers, all the way back to the ancient church, have struggled with the essence of Good Friday. And it's because we may have atonement theologies, that is, that make us right with God, and yet they're presented in a positive light, but there are still questions that linger. There's positiveness from the hymn of Andre Crouch that says, the blood that Jesus shed for me, it will never lose its power. There is goodness and right in that. But atonement theologies don't by themselves 
resolve the conflict that emerges between the two. What Good Friday remembers, that is Jesus' torturous death on a cross, and what Good Friday signifies, and that is the life made available to every person in Christ. The reality, whether you knew it or not tonight, you walked here into these doors, you sat down into these chairs in a state of conflict. And you join with the church from the beginning who does the same. The Gospel of John that Miranda read helps bring this together to a certain degree, revealing that Good Friday is worthy of the name good, even though the events are tragic. We read in the beginning John's clear hypothesis in chapter 1 of his gospel saying, And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. And reading John's narrative with this in mind helps us then see the goodness the life-giving, the beauty, and the truth where otherwise at the crucifixion or, or even prior to that at the trials, we might otherwise only see violence and manipulation and torture. John's introduction introduces and, and really accentuates life. The word that John mentions here has powerful connotations that we lose a little bit in our English translations. For the Jewish readers, this word indicates the story of Genesis chapter 1, where God speaks creation into existence with his words. It also suggests the character of God known through the word of the law of the prophets. In addition, for the Greek readers, word invokes philosophical traditions. Logos, this idea of word, referred not simply to symbols and concepts and, and signified objects, but reason and meaning and rationality, both. And here in John's gospel, beautifully like a poet, John compresses all of that history in the word, in the logos. He compresses all of that history and potency into this word and then declares that word has become flesh. It's fascinating. This image is carried through the gospel and it reaches its pinnacle in the passion narrative that Miranda read as we kicked off the service. In John's gospel, Jesus is arrested because of his unnerving power of the words he speaks in his ministry. It is after Jesus calls Lazarus out of the grave by his words that the chief priests and the Pharisees all get together and they say these words saying, if we let him go on like this, if we don't intervene, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place 
and our nation. That's John chapter 11. You see, John wants us to see from the very beginning pages that Jesus' words have power, that he himself is the word, even power over death because of Jesus' identity as the word made flesh. After being arrested, Jesus is brought to Pilate. And there Jesus embraces the title of Messiah and King. And the two men, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall to observe this, the two men begin to talk about authority and power and truth. And from that very moment that Jesus and Pilate begin to converse, Pilate is revealed as a slave to the growing mob outside. He's unable to exercise his will. And Jesus, very fittingly, is revealed as the suffering servant king from Isaiah chapter 40. You see, John wants us to see the strength of Jesus' words as they challenge the political power with ridiculous, penetrating power the words of Jesus penetrate reason. The logos, the Greek notion of logos, and then in addition, the way Jesus' behavior exemplifies the word of the prophets, the same as the Jewish view of logos. He takes both the Gentile and the Jew, their idea of the word, and he fulfills it. And then Jesus is taken away. And he's flogged. And instead of a laurel wreath that's fitting for a king, beautiful, lush, and green, and gorgeous, and comfortable, the soldiers twist a crown of thorns for his head. They dress Jesus in a purple robe, the, the color strictly set aside for royalty. These acts are meant to be a mockery of Jesus. They're meant to make fun of him. They're meant to dispose any notion that he might be the king, but instead they simply reinforce Jesus' true identity. You see, these trials do not strip Jesus of his dignity. They reinforce Jesus as the embodiment of Isaiah's words. It, and slowly we begin to see what humans see as bad Friday, painful Friday, death Friday, and we begin to see good Friday, the fulfillment of prophecy Friday. Pilate then announces, behold the man, as Jesus is revealed to the crowd, unaware that he is inadvertently revealing the word made flesh and the fulfillment of the prophetic word. You see, Pilate doesn't even know every one of his actions is making it Good Friday. 
is crowning Jesus king. John wants us to behold eternity, existence, creation, revelation, and authority, and meaning squarely in the swollen, bleeding face of Jesus. Nowhere else in history or all of creation has such authority and vulnerability come together as in Jesus, Messiah of Israel, Jehovah, Lord of all creation. And you see, Good Friday truly becomes good when we can see beyond the brutality and the cleansing blood and behold the man, Jesus. That beautiful man who holds the power for the sake of others and absorbs the pain and absorbs the punishment out of love and obedience for his calling. And this Jesus, hanging on a cross, bleeding profusely, mocked, spat at, suffering, alone, and dying. It's on that cross he is crowned and adorned as king. That's the way it was always supposed to be. That was the plan. And John also uses this word glory throughout his gospel, starting in chapter 1, verse 14. And over and over and over throughout the book of John, Jesus speaks of the coming glory. In his dialogue with the religious leaders in John chapter 8, he, he speaks of glorifying the Father, and then he picks it up again in chapter 12 and in chapter 17. Every time, and with increasing transparency, John draws the connection between glory and Jesus, between passion and death, between, for us tonight, good and bad. The Old Testament uses this language of glory always to refer to God's presence. Particularly in the presence of, in the Exodus and, and within the confines of the temple. That's where the glory of the Lord was present. The glory of God is associated with God's holiness, his incredible power, the uncontainable presence, and complete purity. That's glory. In fact, before going into the temple, before beholding God's glory, everything from people to furnishings to clothing had to be absolutely purified with the blood of a sacrificial offering. And this wasn't because God was particularly angry and, and needed to vent out his frustration and anger on something so that he didn't vent it out on his followers, but rather he was symbolically speaking, blood is associated with life. And God is the author of life. 
And while it's hard for us to imagine, the symbol of life offered to God in worship was, the, uh, sorry, I don't mean this to be uh, not in line with the church, but the closest thing I could come up with is like scrubbing bubbles. Some of you are looking at me blank. That concerns me. You should know what scrubbing bubbles are if your house is clean. Scrubbing bubbles, you, 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 you spray all these scrubbing bubbles on the porcelain of your toilet or the sink or your kitchen counters or, or your kids, whatever you need to like purify. That's exactly what's going on here, that this sacrifice to God in worship was like a, a sacramental scrubbing bubbles. The sacrificial system prepared a, a disinfected place and a disinfected people to come into God's presence. It had to be right in order for the people to behold the glory of God. And what John does is he, he looks at Jesus' blood and he sees the glory of God. Not in a sacrifices of the animals in the temple. He sees the purity and the glory of God. I don't need scrubbing bubbles. I don't need to be purified. I don't need to be cleaned up. I can come into God's glorious presence. Not through an animal but then suffering death of the Messiah. In Jesus' crucifixion, God, John sees the author of life offering up his own blood so that God's promised life would flow from his side. It's access. It's an unlocked door. This isn't gruesome to be sure to the human eye. But the message is not gruesome. It's good news. It's Good Friday. This is the great news of Good Friday. And in this service and in communion, we remember. That's what a Good Friday service is so that we can remember. Good Friday is when the good comes. We see the word and the glory of God in the face of Jesus crucified. That we don't have to be perfect in order to go stand in the glory of your Father. But because of the blood, because of the sacrifice, you get to waltz right up to him. That's good. It is the glory of a God who holds nothing back from you. He doesn't just offer you a little bit and say, come back when you've got your act more together and then we'll talk. He holds nothing back. It's the beauty of a lover dying so that the beloved might live. the glory of a man fully alive and willing to trade pain willing to trade perfection for pain 
comfort for loss. So that the sick who look upon him will be healed. That's what makes it good. And we don't wait until Easter. We realize that Jesus is crowned and he is adorned as king on the cross. Because the blood is shed. On the night that Jesus died, the curtain is torn in two. There's no longer a barrier. That doesn't happen on Easter. That happens on Good Friday. That's good news. But before he gets there, he he goes through this ancient ritual of taking the bread and the cup. And his disciples didn't have a foggy idea what in the world was going on. And he breaks bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. Can you imagine what they're thinking? And this is the cup of the new covenant which has been poured out for you. This is my blood that will be shed for you. Part of me wonders if Jesus was glad they didn't get it. Keep in mind, Jesus is a storyteller. There's a part of me that wonders if he was glad they didn't get it because they would get it later. You ever tell someone a joke? And then you say, you'll, you'll get that on the way home. They just don't get it. Maybe you're that person. <laughs> like, I don't get any jokes. But he, he served them this meal knowing exactly what was coming. And you know what's really cool about it? Do you know who was not excused from the meal? Judas. If there was ever a time to say, you don't have a seat here, this was it. And instead, Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, and there's a seat for Judas. Friends, there's a seat for you. There's a seat for you here in this church. There's a seat for you as we take communion. There's a seat for you in worship. There's a seat for you. Why? Because the blood of Jesus offers life. And we can spend our whole lives trying to chase and find where is that found. And it's found in the person of Jesus. Easter is celebratory, to be sure. And we are going to have a great time on Sunday. But we're not there yet. Darkness has come over the land. Earthquakes are happening. Thunderstorms are in place. Curtains are being torn in two. People are screaming. People are screaming in fear and people are screaming in sadness. People are running because they're confused. They're scared. All while what's at work is good. We're going to do something a little bit different tonight as we uh, go into this last section. Is um, They're going to lead us in 
some worship and we've set up communion in the back, back at the hospitality table. And we're just going to ask, um, we've, I think we've got five songs. So you got quite a while just to sit and contemplate, read scripture, pray, get on your knees, stand, raise your hands, sit quietly, don't sing, completely up to you. We're going to ask when you're ready or when your family's ready, you can go individually or, or together. You can just go back to that table, spend some time, take communion, and then come join us in worship. We've specifically and very intentionally set this time aside so that you can reflect, so you can think, so that you can process and receive the good because it is good. So let's pray together and then we'll go into our time. God, we love you. We are grateful for you. We read the passion narrative and and we see just what you went through, Jesus, before you even got to the cross. And we are grateful. We've been walking every day, getting ready throughout this holy week. And now we pause. And we remember that we played a role in what you endured. We played our part and we're sorry for that. but we also play the role in receiving forgiveness. That the old is gone and the new has come. So thank you. Thank you that this Good Friday is this culmination of conflict between the hope and the goodness of what took place and the horror and the conflict and the gruesomeness of what took place, all in the same breath. So as we worship you as individuals, as we worship you as friends, as we worship you as a family and individual families, would you draw us closer, continue to set our hearts in the right place. For we love you, we praise you, you, King of Kings, rightful King, only King, ruler and authority over all of this world and the world yet to come, heaven and earth. It's for you that we submit and surrender and acknowledge you as royalty. And it's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray, that we have gathered, that we read the scriptures. It is within your presence that we do such things. Amen.